You're listening to the Sexual Wellness Sessions with Kate Moyle. Today's episode was brought to you by Blueheart, the easy-to-use, expert-designed app for couples who are experiencing difficulties with libido, one of the most common sexual challenges that couples come up against. Blueheart are challenging the taboo around the subject by making getting help and advice more accessible. Blueheart is removing some of the barriers to make sex therapy possible for everyone. They offer expert-led therapeutic techniques, activities, education and guided conversations, all from the app so that you can prioritise your relationship and sexual well-being in a way that works for you at your own pace. The Blueheart app is available to download now on Android and iPhone. Today on the Sexual Wellness Sessions, we are talking about chemsex. And this is something that as a psychosexual therapist, I have worked with quite a bit and there are lots of specialist services for. But the best person for the job for me to have this conversation with is David Stewart, who is the man who developed the world's first chemsex support services. And among his many roles as a drug use counsellor, a support worker, a public servant. He continues to support international governments and communities and is an amazing public health advocate for better sexual well-being. So, David, thank you so much for your time. I know you are working on so many projects and are so busy all of the time doing so many things. Um, and we first met years ago, <laughs> probably probably about five years ago, if not more, mm-hmm. actually, um, when you were delivering trainings. And I think you know, for me at that time, you were really the only person doing it. And we were seeing that chemsex was starting to be talked about a lot more kind of in this space. And I, at the time, was working um, in Vauxhall for a kind of men having sex with men sexual health charity. So it's something that we were talking about a lot as therapists with that client group. But I guess it's probably a good place for us to start is by actually discussing how we define chemsex, sex and Drugs are two things that have gone together throughout the course of history, but we define chemsex as something different. Mm. Okay. Um, And yes, it was lovely to meet you all those years ago. All those years ago, it was so important to have therapists sort of understanding chemsex because it's um, there's such a huge psychosexual uh, package to be unraveled, particularly after the drugs worker has done their job and a person is trying to repackage their sex lives again. Um, so I'm a big fan of, of your kindness, but always the way you always show up and learn and educate yourself. And I, I, I've loved that our paths keep crossing. Mm, me too. Um, chemsex, it, if, it does have a very specific definition. So there's a thing called sexualized drug use in academia or in research, SDU, sexualized drug use, which kind of covers any population, any cohort of, pe- of people um, who are using any drugs or alcohol in sexual contexts. And there's a, a, a really good base of research to be found there on that. Chemsex is a specific form of sexualized drug use, um, very unique to the gay community. I think it's important to say that if I was sitting with a client or a patient in a therapy situation and they if, uh, were, for instance, a woman who has a Valium to have sex and she's calling that chemsex and wants help with it, I'm not going to argue with her about the definitions of chemsex. Anyway, mm. I wouldn't argue if someone said that, like to identify as an addict, regardless of what that word means to me, if it felt right for them, that's cool. But chemsex does have a very specific definition that becomes more important um, when, you, when you're talking about healthcare provision and when you're talking about um, unique cultures and cultural appropriation. 
Mm. So I think uh, the uh, it's gay sex, as it appears. There's a name for it online, which is called PNP, Party and Play. So I've probably almost any gay man on the planet has for many decades heard of PNP. It's part of our discourse. Uh, party and play just mean drugs and sex, which you find on Grinder and other hookup apps like that. And it's been really common, that phrase, since Gaydar was first founded, I think around 1999 or something. And it became pretty much uh, almost like a normal part of our lives. Chemsex is not just any drug used for gay sex. It's actually three specific drugs. So crystal methamphetamine, mephedrone, um, and GHB or GBL. Mm. And those three drugs became in, insanely popular in gay communities, particularly propagated and made available via online hookup apps. And they became a cultural phenomenon kind of for us. So overnight, um, gay men who had always used lots of drugs anyway for partying and clubbing and communing and dancing and coming together and dancing our way through HIV epidemics and uh, and through awful uh, years of gay sexual liberation. Um, as times changed, we adopted these three drugs specifically um, in, in, to kind of medicate our sex lives or to enhance our sex lives. Not everybody. Most people don't. A whole lot of people do. And uh, it became such a thing. So many gay men were so disproportionately affected by this, by the bad effects of this, that we had to create healthcare responses and community responses that stood apart from regular sexualized drug use, regular drug epidemics. And it became a thing that needed a name to identify it so we could develop the right kind of healthcare responses. And specialist services. Yeah, because I had my, uh, I, I did loads of ecstasy in my day, in my youth. Um, and I, yes, it really did help me get through the AIDS epidemic. I needed to commune with my community on dance floors and I needed some serious disinhibition for that. But I, I, me and my brethren, we, we weren't rushing to A&E departments because of addictions to our ecstasy. Or we weren't rushing to A&E departments because of the violent responses we were having to these drugs. We weren't rushing to A&E departments with overdoses or we weren't rushing to drug services for help with our ecstasy or cocaine or MDMA. It was just recreational, very low harm for, for the most part. But around the year 2000, some, some things did change. First of all, we, we adapted our lives to technology hookup apps, and these three drugs became really popular culturally, gay culturally, all around the world. And so suddenly, from the year 2000, just the increasing numbers of gay men showing up at A&E with drug-induced psychosis, sort of feeling paranoid or being chased, or or deaths, drug deaths, we've had huge rises in deaths related to GHB and GBL overdoses. And um, people needing support from sexual health clinics because of the rise in HIV, people rushing to drug services and collecting of needles because suddenly these drugs, which we'd just taken orally, are now injectable drugs as well. So there's just so much change. And the word to describe it, and I needed help when, when I was starting to use those drugs. And I kept being sent to like heroin addiction clinics where they didn't understand grinder, they didn't understand gay sex, they didn't understand the role HIV and AIDS had played in my sex life. They didn't understand how 
societal homophobia and religion had ruined my experience of gay sex and and that the role that drugs played in disinhibiting me in that regard they didn't get it at all i learned nothing in in a, a typical drug support service that helped me deal with chemsex and so this is yeah why the word was kind of invented and used to redefine and create new drug support services that were chemsex specific mm, and i suppose all of that stuff that you just talked about is playing such a big part in the dynamics of what's going on for chemsex users that understanding that is about a huge part of creating the not just the solution but the support but the understanding and i guess i guess we hear the phrase chemsex you know almost i'd say exclusively related to the men having sex with men gay by men's communities rather than other groups. Would you say that's true? That's true, and, and that is helpful. Like I said, I'm not going to uh, politically correct adjust the terminology of any patient or client mm. sitting in front of me, but, you know, the, the uh, it is a word, chemsex is a word, and it's a phenomenon that's so uniquely connected to the gay, to the homosex experience mm. um, that it can be hurtful for some people to, to have it culturally appropriated by others. It means... You know, it's, it, chemsex is a phenomenon that gay communities around the world are grappling with. It makes us have to think about the role sex plays in our lives, the role recreational drugs play in our lives, the role sexual disinhibition plays in our lives, the role hooking up apps play in our lives, the role HIV has played in our lives. It's a really intense, difficult few decades where we're kind of look at this gay sexual liberation that we've fought so hard for and created uh, in a different way. And... So it's a very personal word for for our communities, and also so many of us are losing losing friends, uh, dying from G or struggling with it, or even if they're not dying, people who are just disappearing from our social networks as they get more deeper into sort of regular drug use and abandoning friendships. Mm. It's um it's a very emotional word and phenomenon for us. I was just listening to you kind of talking there, and I was thinking, you know, so much in such a short space of time for this community you know like so much change and so even in HIV treatment mm. we have seen such a phenomenal amount of change but there's still so far to come and the just the challenges don't go away the challenge the barriers don't go away they it feels like they're kind of changing or they are adapting I suppose or ways of managing um the the feelings emotional kind of regulation in a way and something um you, a word you used there was disinhibition mm. and that was something I wanted to ask about was that what what is the purpose for the way that people are using these drugs like what are they offering um uh-huh. and I know you mentioned G there and we've seen obviously a huge problem with G being overdosed because it's so the, the balance in using, for example, that drug between overdosing or not is very small and is very fine. And people use it, um, they put drops in drinks. So it's very easy for that to be, for the amount of that to be, I suppose, unregulated as well. Yeah, certainly. So, I mean, if if I was going to um, 
the best way to answer that question is, is think about alcohol in the in your own friends' lives, in your own friends' and families' lives. You know, you, we can't say why is it a problem where it's not a problem for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. There are some people that enjoy a drink just because it's a slight disinhibition because you finish work and you're a bit uptight and you're a bit anxious and you near and your friends are making jokes and you're not really laughing at them because you're not in the mood and a drink serves a purpose of loosening you up. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, we wouldn't label that as a problem necessarily unless the person wanted it to be labelled that way. Um, there is a million roles that alcohol plays in our lives. Why will some person use it more problematically than the other person? And we've all got friends who can't stop drinking, who get really drunk at the end of the night, won't talk to us the next morning about the things that happened the night before because it's so ashamed. Uh, and then there's others that we... It's a spectrum. And with chems, it's exactly the same. You know, there's a whole lot of people that use it recreationally just to enhance their lives on a bank holiday or at Christmas even. There are some people that do it um, to as a dessert after they've had their barbecue on a Sunday afternoon. This is a way of socialising. and um, But these drugs are complicated. Yeah. And also gay sexual disinhibition is complicated. Some people, of course, can just climb into bed and have sex with another person without any issues at all. But you're a psychosexual therapist. So you know that there's very few people on the planet that aren't, um, I think, victim of cultural stigmas, shame, mm-hmm. body image issues, uh, intimacy issues, uh, uh, religious issues, all these kinds of things. And if you add homophobia... When I say homophobia, I don't mean just, you know, my son is gay. I mean that thing my son does, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And the ability to internalise that. This is a huge part of chemistry. And also just the fact that we live in a society which is heteronormative, clues in the name, heteronorm. Yeah. You know, that it, it, it It's not just, his, you know, whether we like it or not, we are still battling with this stuff in 2021. Yeah, you said it best, really. It's a very short history we've really had of uh, the gay sexual liberation movement. It's to think that in, in my lifetime, it was illegal. In my lifetime, it mm. uh, was a it was punishable by law. And in my lifetime, it was um, labelled a mental health disorder. Um, I've watched the Stonewall riots and I've watched the... Uh, it's a very brief history with so much. And a big part of that history was the world amping up its hatred of gay sex, not homosexuality, it's of gay sex through the AIDS epidemic. Just as people were Mm. coming to terms with the fact that my son is gay, suddenly they were forced through the AIDS epidemic to think of penises and bums. (laughs) And Mm. when they weren't quite ready to go that far yet, but it was just in their faces with newspapers every single day. So the amped up hatred of disgust of the gay sex act was madly internalised, as well as the, this fear of our sex is now dangerous and deadly and healthcare mm. organisations teaching us decade after decade, be frightened of the sex you like, it can kill you, skill up fast. And that's in the bedroom with you all the time. So it's no surprise to me that this population sought mm. a drug to yeah. disinhibit them from all of these experiences. And so that's what these drugs do 
or this is what the intention of using them is. And I suppose, you know, what I something I also want to say is, you know, we're labelling or we're naming these kind of different drugs here, but they're obviously regularly all used in combination, yeah. or regularly used together or regularly used with cocaine or regularly used with ketamine. They're also mixed with party drugs and alcohol. And it's not just as straightforward as someone uses one drug. Yeah, so historic, I've worked in many drug services over the years, and usually you, when you do an assessment, there's a primary drug and a secondary drug in some cases, and some cases a tertiary drug. But with chemsex, there's always a cocktail of three specific drugs, those ones we mentioned, and it's so easy for them to sort of get wrong. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, if you were not, but dr- drugs do serve different purposes for different people. So, I mean, I, I have tried heroin once 30 years ago because my friend offered it to me. And I didn't like it at all. It was very, it was relaxing, but it didn't tick my boxes. And I was also aware of the harm it could do. And the pleasure didn't outweigh my awareness of that. Mm. But jump forward a few decades, I was offered a different drug, which did work for me. And the harms it caused were worth it because it delivered something I needed. And so it did develop into a problem. And if, you, like, if you and I were, Kate, were going to have sex together, forgive me, on heroin, we were just, um, it's such an inward drug. It's such an introverted drug. You feel safe and warm. It's not something that people go out to go, do, go dancing on. It's not something that you would uh, go out and have fun on or go to partying or raving. It's a, it serves a very distinct purpose of numbing pain. And mm. I didn't need that. I didn't need that. I mean, I did, but I had other ways to do it. It it never took hold. And if you and I were going to try and have sex on heroin, it's just not going to be the most amazing sexual experience of either of our lives. You know, we might not even get there. And mm-hmm. But if you and I were going to have sex on ecstasy, which is also not chem sex, it's just sex on ecstasy. It's uh, Ecstasy is a very empathizing drug. So your skin mm-hmm. would feel amazing under my fingertips. And I would care enormously about whether you were enjoying it or whether you were present. I would be interested in your life and your history and, and how you felt in this moment. And it would be a very connected, sexual, sensual experience. Where mm, and quite euphoric. Yes. <laughs> and that's very low harm as well. And it's it's not what gay men would describe as chem sex. It's just sex on ecstasy and it's quite lovely. But when chems, a crystal methamphetamine and methadone and G, so especially as a cocktail, serve a very distinct kind of function. So the, the, the primary high is sexual disinhibition. Not for everybody, because there's a whole lot of straight people in America and Australia that do crystal meth, but it's not primarily a sexual drug for them. So we've had to kind of understand when gay men do it, it, it almost exclusively relates to sex. And why is that? Is it cultural? Is it biological? Is there something different about the way gay men's bodies works or whatever? You know, there's loads of discussion. But essentially, I, it might just be that gay men experience a greater need for disinhibition around gay sex because of all of those historical challenges, that this drug serves that purpose, like heroin never would, like ecstasy never would. And this is why it's turned into such a phenomenon. So understanding drugs, and that's why the word chemsex and the way it describes particular drugs, we really do need the cultural competence for whatever uh, health epidemic we're working with. You wouldn't expect an African woman who's living with HIV 
to go to a gay men's HIV charity to get support. She would deserve some uh, support service that understand understood her culture as a woman mm. and as an African person, and from her where she was raised, a culture. And chemsex is associated with a culture. Mm-hmm. The things we're talking about. So it does. It does need a name. It needs different kinds of support services, different kind of healthcare responses. And so when we're talking about, and something people might have heard quite a bit about um, is like this idea of chemsex parties. Mm. So people are taking drugs and what we're seeing is that the drugs are facilitating, as you said, disinhibition, but also the ability to have sex for an extended period of time, be awake for an extended period of time. So kind of lengthen that disinhibited experience. And, you know, a lot of people who are, um, chemsex users are reporting a sense of a loss of time as well you know we know that that's something that's kind of commonly reported but I suppose so what we're seeing is that it's not just the inhibition but it's almost I suppose almost a sense of being in a, a bubble isn't it mm. a um, a sexually explorative disinhibited pleasure focused mm bubble I don't know I don't know a better word I, it's a perfect I'm trying word. to think of a better word for bubble but I don't know if there is one I mean you're you're the expert I call it a bubble often because it, it, it really is um especially when you you have your your coding you know you have the the straight persona that you adopt to get by in life to get by in a family so you don't get rejected or ridiculed by your family so that you fit in and then you've got your gay life which is the secret one, the dirty one, the one that you kept in that secret cupboard with your porn magazines as a teenager. Your entire gay identity is wrapped up in that kind of shame. Not everybody, uh, but a lot of people, that there's a splitting that kind of happens in that there's the, the gay sexy me. There's also the gay effeminate me, the one that come alive can come alive in a gay bar when there's a drag queen on stage, but the one I would never take into school with me or, or, or college mm. or into church. <laughs> um, so we do have our own bubbles the places we go to, we're of escapism. And when those bubbles are, like, for instance, for instance, you think of the gay sauna or a gay chemsex party, whatever that means. I mean, first of all, a, a party, when we're talking about a chemsex party, I don't want people to think that it's like you get an invitation in the post and you show up at a certain place <laughs> and you have an, an orgy that's orchestrated for like two days and then you all go home. It's much more chaotic than that. It's it's hooking up with someone on Grinder, a second person coming over when it gets boring or a third one leaving or two leaving. So a lot of traffic through one particular house as you go to a different house um, when you get bored with that sex or they get annoyed with you because you're wanking too much to the porn rather than engaging. It's absolute chaos, uh, but a great disinhibited sexual feeling of chaos. And Mm. that is a bubble of time where the real world doesn't matter. You're absolutely, with the help of the drugs, indulging this side of you, which you keep so wrapped up and so well behaved and so uh, straight acting and so, you know, you, you know, we can get married legally and you can go with your husband to your Christmas dinner with your family where they might accept you, provided you don't talk about the gay sex and they want to assume that you're having missionary position sex in a regular, the same way that they are, they might be. And they don't want to know that once in a while you both do chems together and go for a sauna and have threesomes. And, you know, there's bubbles that exist. And I think therapy can help us to integrate those and there's a big role for therapy in that. Yeah, and I guess that was something I, I wanted to also talk about is I, um, as you know, used to work um, for a service mm. that was based in Vauxhall. Um, so really working with this community. Um, 
And I think a lot of the people I was talking to were people, for example, who had moved to London to explore their sexuality. So they had come from small towns or villages or and moved to the city in order to be able to sexually be themselves mm. or sexually experience what it's like to be able to be gay or to be, you know, the, mm. a, a city like London, it offers so much invisibility, doesn't it? Nobody knows us. There's just the pure volume of people. Um, and there is a sense of that exploration or that ability to suddenly be able to a word I used to hear you know words I used to hear quite a lot to, to be able to be gay to be myself yeah. to be um but just to be this part of myself or to express this part of myself and there was a sense of getting kind of dipping their toes into the kind of gay community and it starting as fun but then what became difficult was the challenge to be able to have sober sex or the challenge to be able to have sex without chems because there was this sense of doing it without just didn't feel the same didn't match up there wasn't the same experience and it couldn't it couldn't compare or it felt disappointing in some way and it's something that as a as a therapist knowledge that sober sex must feel pretty terrifying (laughs) if you don't have the disinhibition. Being seen fully as yourself, the self that you felt previously, well, it wasn't okay to be. You're, you can't hide and it's very exposing and it's very, very vulnerable. You know, that this is something that's difficult for a lot of people across a wide range of experiences around the world, but can be particularly difficult for certain populations of people. But is this something that as a as a kind of drugs counsellor, drug use counsellor, support worker that you find people are also struggling with? Because I think there's a there's a tension, isn't there, between wanting to, for example, have sober sex, but it being absolutely terrifying. And just in general life, sex can present this conundrum for people because we are meant to be open, relaxed and free and vulnerable and exposed Mm. but at the same time we fear the judgment of the person we're with Mm. and we have our own internal voices and our own internal narratives about what we're doing and those things can often kind of come up to clash with each other and I suppose this is an even more complex example of that. Absolutely um, there, like you say, when, where there are so much expectations on us to perform sexually, all of us, huge, you know, the insta-famous generation who um, who try to live up with the, the insta-perfection they deliver on their Instagram accounts, and now they're in bed with someone, and they are a flawed, authentic, complex human being, and they, it's hard for one, for both partners in bed to sort of come to terms with that. There are, it, depending on how much you invest in those affirmations, Remember that gay men are part of a very sexualized culture without any uh, sort of a judgment being applied to that. It, it is almost defined by sex. It is actually defined by sex. My mum knew I was gay from the age of six, but I wasn't having sex with men. And yet the, the very definition of gay is having sex with men, it seems. Whereas there's actually a whole lot more to me than just the sex I have with other men that makes me gay and is part of that definition. But from the... 
from the 70s onward and since bathhouses and saunas became since we found our own sexual liberation and as we fought for gay sexual liberation through the AIDS epidemic, the right to have different kinds of relationships, the right to not fall into heteronormative marriage type relationships to define what we wanted relationships to be like. Um, from our sexualized culture, our saunas and our, our apps, we are hugely sexualized culture and that comes with huge expectations. Mm. And if I could sum up the experience of nearly all of my work as a counsellor, People just, they sit in front of me and they, they describe it, it once a, a small amount of trust is gained. They might say, I get nervous taking my clothes off with a stranger. Um, mm. And I say, thank you for telling me that. I understand. And tell me more. And they, I, at some point I want to say, why are you telling me? You should be telling the person you're in bed with. Why are you only telling me? And they said, oh, I could never tell the person I'm in bed with. There is too much at mm. stake. Uh, they, I am delivering this sexual performance. I'm in bed and I am delivering and I'm performing and I'm aware of my movement. I'm, I'm highly alert and attuned to body signals for what they expect me to do after this bit finishes and how long I'm meant to stay in that position for and what do they expect of my performance after this and what are the signals for that and how long will this last and do I look good in this position? Are they buying this performance I'm giving? And if everything goes okay in that scenario, they don't get rejected or they don't make a fool of themselves or they don't fart or they don't get found ugly or tossed out of bed then they would come to someone like me and say that was good that was great sex and I'd argue no that was an amazing performance but that was kind of the opposite of good sex that was an amazing performance but a lot of people that I meet don't know the difference mm. and a really kind conversation about what sex can be how intimacy and sex and clumsiness and the complexity of our sexualities and the complexity of our humanness and frailties and these are the things that make us sex sexual and attractive and gorgeous and interesting and that form the human bonds that make sex good and I don't know how my culture specifically became so dependent on these very high expectations of sexual performance that are driving so many of us to really hard drugs and mm. self-harm and it, it's in a way, then I'm thinking the role of drugs is to quiet the mind. It does. You know, turn it, does. it, turn it off. Turn off the thoughts. Turn off the thinking. Everyone I know that describes the chems specifically, they they use sentences like, "I I can fit into that crowd now. I am one of the sexy boys. I can feel sexy in that environment, and I even look sexy when I look in the mirror when I'm on drugs, but not when I'm not. And this is what the, those drugs do." And I, I've mm. tried them all. I, I spent more than 10 years doing these drugs myself. I, I am still astounded by the fact that I am so sexually liberated on these drugs. Like I remember the first time I tried it, I think I rolled my head back and said, oh, is this what normal people feel like? Is this what it feels like to feel horny? Wow. And I never looked mm. back. And I have so many people sort of tell me that shared experience. So a sense of freedom. Mm. Like... Ah, oh, this is horniness. I thought horniness was that performance I was delivering. But wow, this is just, I know what I want. And I know what feels good and I can say it out loud. And I can um, be with that person without hyperthinking of all the things that could go wrong. I'm just free. It was a, an extraordinary freedom that I mm. embraced to the point and of harm. I guess then, you mm. know, that that's the opposite of how we're feeling or how we think we're going to feel, I suppose, particularly at 
the start of a process of trying to have sober sex. You know, there must be nothing free feeling about it. And, you know, this idea of performance, I think, is it's really crippling for almost everyone. Mm. When you get really good at that performance, that you are successful every time you do it, and suddenly you can be... Um, uh, you can fit into this highly sexualized culture that all of your gay friends are part of and is expected of you. So suddenly you can fit in. I can't under, uh, underestimate what all humans need to fit into part of a culture. And every culture has a hierarchy of what is success and what isn't and how you thrive within a community and how you fail within a community. I can't emphasize enough that for a lot of people in my community, it's, it's really important to be confident sexually. If you're not, you can be alone, unloved, and isolated. So you do need to learn those skills very fast if you want to fit. It's not true. You know, if we were in an ideal environment where gay sex and culture could be discussed in school, where it wasn't kept hidden from your family, um, where you saw representation on, on television and, and things better than we have in the last few decades, if, if th these things happen, then we wouldn't be going to seek bubbles and we wouldn't be seeking drug use disinhibition we would be able to fall into bed with someone knowing that it might go really really wrong um i've woken up in the old days next to someone completely hung over and i can't even remember their name because i was so drunk the night before but i this is pre-grinder i couldn't just block them and walk out the door I would have to have breakfast with them and let them know somehow that I can't remember their name and find a way to giggle about that. We might disagree about Margaret Thatcher, but we still would finish the conversation without, again, blocking each other. And so we learned these weird conflict resolution communication skills. Clumsiness and awkwardness were part of the sexual experience. Mm. And uh, the, the, the speediness of hookup culture and apps has really robbed us of those communication skills and conflict resolution skills. And, and some of the clumsiness and the authenticity that used to come with a more extended, oh, I want to say courtship without sounding like I'm in the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I know what you mean there because it's so um, easy, mm. I suppose, with hookup apps. It is. It's a disposable culture. It's, mm. um, it's disposable sex. You can block not just on your phone, but in your mind, that experience, it didn't go well and pretend it didn't happen um, and seek the next one. And, and we don't learn from that. And you, if you, there's a, a, a person that once described sort of gay sexuality as uh, like a sofa. So you know how you can have a, you can buy a sofa and you can go one end and go find this really cheap one that you found in a secondhand shop. that's probably riddled, riddled with fleas and it's ugly, but my gosh, it's comfortable. You can sink into it and you can lie into it and you don't want any human being to see it, but it's, gosh, it's comfortable. And at the other extreme, you could buy that super designed, really expensive sofa that's gorgeous in your home. So beautiful, but my God, it's uncomfortable to sit on. Mm. Gay sexuality can be a bit like that. You know, we've learned to make our sofas gorgeous. We've got our tribes, we've got our clones and we've got our queers and we've got our um, our saunas and we know how, and we've got Tom of Finland and we've got our fetish gear and we know how to make sex look good present it well um to go to a sex club and fit into it to be successful but we're not so good at just sitting in it at just being an authentic clumsy complex sexual being in bed with another person and, and enjoying that authentically mm. that's where the therapy we do need help with therapy and as a drugs worker 
I can help somebody make changes around their drug use if they choose, help them to achieve the goals they want to achieve in regard to their drug use. But we, we call it the, um, the holy grail of chemsex is the ability to have sober sex afterward. Mm. And psychosexual therapists are my, my most focused group of support workers that need to be skilled up in, in this regard in culture of chemsex and gay sex and all the things we've been talking about today mm. because learning how to become that gorgeous sofa, learning how to enjoy sex authentically and be connected and intimate with the person next to you and feeling sexy rather than driven to performance, especially after you've spent a decade just performing it and having that affirmed as a success repeatedly, repeatedly, and never having a clumsy failed sexual experience affirmed as a great success ever. In fact, it's just leading to loneliness and isolation and rejection. So we do need a lot of help from therapists to get to mm. And I guess the thing I keep thinking about is it's about breaking away from shame. And that, for me, is just something that plays such a big part in my job in general, whoever I'm working with, really. Yeah. Yeah, shame, it is, it is at the core of it. It's a sensitive word for my community. There's a lot of people who are defensive that, you know, we're so proud and shame is the opposite of it. It's hard to sort of admit that um, that you're not. Uh, like, to be honest, most people don't even know that this that, that shame is a part of this. It's just mm. normal. It's just normal. It's how our mm. sex lives are. And, and we've seen films. I suppose, like, for me, this there's also how do... I want to um, ask you about like specific support services, but it's also we've seen films like Chemsex um, and The Grass is Always Grinder mm-hmm. pushing the conversation into the more main- mainstream because this is also a part of it, isn't it? Is how do we understand this more? Like how do we try and educate? How do people see what's going on? How do we learn? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of how we learn is through the general media, through films, through podcasts, through um, Netflix, you know, through newspapers. Yeah. But we've seen films like that, which are have been created by people in those communities and created, I suppose, kind of sensitively and with the intention of there being at least an educational element of watching them. And, yeah. um, you know, I've seen both of them and... Um, went actually with like therapist colleagues because I think it's important for all of us to also get a as close as possible apart from working with individuals where we always want to know their story it's a way of kind of putting yourself into what the actuality of an experience might be like but we see things like this pushing the conversation into the mainstream like is that enough like what do we how do we start changing the the narratives around a topic like this yeah it's certainly not enough because as a person that um i you know i I work in uh, in in places where we have thousands of people coming every month who are using chems for sex in this kind of context it's you know it's not a small problem Mm. um and it's not always a problem so finding that this what i do know is the solution is not having chemsex advisors in every sexual health clinic or in every gay charity in the world. It's, you know, the, the solution, that's putting the Band-Aid or the plaster on the solution. There's, we're talking about consent issues. We're talking about um, knowing how sex can fit into lives and living in places where you can have a, 
a conversation about how I, how do I want sex to fit into my life? Am I the sort of person that wants to be um, sexually available and have open relationships, or am I not a relationship person? Do I want a, a, a heteronormative kind of relationship? Do I want a monogamous relationship? Do I want to fall in love? How do I make that happen? How do I equate my um, what people expect of me and being authentic when I live in a digital age? What's the best sex I've had and what's the worst? Do I like saunas? Do I want them to be a part of my world? Do I not? How do I negotiate that? If I'm in a sauna, does that mean I'm obliged to have sex with anyone who approaches me? Or where do I learn the skills to negotiate? I know I don't want that, but I do here. And If you go to a chemsex party where there's six people there, who's teaching me the skills to say, I am here and I am available, but not to all of you. And if I change my mind at any minute, no means no. And we're not, nearly all of the, guys I'm supporting who are in sort of the chemsex lifestyles don't have any of those skills. Mm. They never learned them. They didn't learn them in school. It's all all of their sexual lingo and behaviour and cultural behaviours are bubble stuff that they've had to invent, learn in chaotic environments from people who were really high and intoxicated and disinhibited. And it's not enough, these films and this awareness, because... We need to sit down and have coffee with our friends and have conversations about the way the HIV epidemic in, has impacted my sex, the way the sofa sofa-ness of my sex feels and how I might know how to perform sex, but what does it mean and what do I want from my sex life and where are my skills? We're, not, we're living in a vacuum of these kinds of conversations. You know, some people can't even talk about HIV. So people go to bed with each other and they don't even know how to talk about using a condom or they're on prep, so they'd rather just not talk about it or take dro- take drugs and pretend that that's not an issue. You know, learning to avoid an issue with silence and avoidance is how we're taught to function in this world. Um, so we can't just have charities pumping out messages about how to talk about sexual well-being. We've got to have it in our schools. We've got to have it in our culture. We've got to have it in our families you know, the same way that someone sat down with my sister and talked to her about um, her first period and having uh, her first sexual encounter, what the boys will want from her at school and those pressures. Not all girls are getting that, but I, gosh, they deserve it within their families and within their school environments. I can tell you that when the gay sex topic comes up at that age, every parent runs and every school teacher runs. And we can't expect these boys who might grow up to identify as gay or queer to be equipped with the schools of uh, the skills of managing their sexuality and this world they're going into with drugs and apps and sexual freedoms without skilling them up with anything at all. So no, these films aren't enough and uh, health messages from charities aren't enough. We need to do so much more because we have an epidemic of harm happening Mm. within these communities. And, you know, I completely kind of hear what you're saying and I guess you know the only way that we can continue to do that is by trying to do better yeah (laughs) trying to do better by trying to raise awareness by having the conversations by not shying away from them but for people who might be listening to this who are struggling or looking for support or don't have friends or family they can have those conversations with like where can they go okay a message for anyone that is um, using chems and thinking they want some guidance is you don't have to have a problem to go and get help because most chem sex support is just a conversation about what sex you want to be having uh, frequently you might want chems to fit into your life do you know about harm reduction information it's 
people think I'm not going to go to see a chemsex advisor because I don't have a problem. This is not why chemsex advisors exist. We exactly. it's it's to help prevent problems happening in the first place. Same way that you wouldn't jump out of you wouldn't go skydiving without a parachute and a little class first on how to do it. So why do drugs without going and learning about it first? Um, I wouldn't go to a typical addiction clinic because this is so wrapped up in gay sex and sex generally. So I would go to places where gay sex is discussed easily. Nearly any sexual health clinic in England has teams there. They're called health advisors that can talk about chemsex and gay sex really easily. So even if there's not a great big chemsex sign on the door of your sexual health clinic, I promise you that nearly any nurse in there has heard of it and knows exactly where to refer you to support. There's loads of online stuff as well. Um, and the gay charities, and I think Terence Higgins Trust have got uh, a, a group happening at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Spectra runs some mindfulness classes on, on chemsex. So there's group support and there's peer support and there's drug use support, just how to make changes if you want. And if it is a problem, believe me, yeah, start with your sexual health clinic or um, or an LGBT drug and alcohol service. Amazing. And I think, you know, the other thing to say there is don't be so scared of what you think that's going to look like, that it stops you going. Yeah. Because I think also the things that you, you know, and I remember you have said this to me before, is... It's about managing and helping people and awareness and self-awareness and, you know, teaching those kind of skills, as you said. You're not going to be kind of sat down and told that you have to never have chem sex, free sex ever again, and that that's the only way you can access help. It's about managing, I suppose, helping people to manage their sex lives and sexual wellness. And I think a lot of people might have the fear that that's what they might be told. Definitely. I mean, yeah, it's... Drugs work, a drugs worker's job really is when we do drugs, I mean, it's a bit like when you train a puppy. If you train a baby puppy to poo on the lawn outside rather than on the carpet, you need to teach it with reward and affirmation and repetition, repetition, repetition. It's not going to understand your language. And if you repeat this often enough, the puppy learns via habit to behave in a certain way and it just becomes habit. Now, if two years later you decide to teach that same puppy, he's grown up now, to poo inside on the carpet instead, it's really hard because it's repeated a thing for so long, it's quite a challenge. You can't just teach it once or explain it to it. You've got to rewire the whole puppy's behavioral habit syndrome. And this is why sometimes we need a drugs worker too, because if you've done chems repetitively, weekend after weekend, you do need some help in setting new habits if you want to. And that's what a drugs worker can do. But like you say, we're friendly people. Most often we just have a conversation about what do you want your sex life to be in the next 7 to 14 days? How can mm. I help make that happen for you? That's usually what it comes mm, down to. Amazing. So working with the short term, but also just giving people a safe space to feel heard or have their worries heard or their feelings heard. Because it's complicated out there, yeah. Amazing. Well, David, I feel like we've covered so much in this conversation and you are such a amazing voice of authority on this and I know you do so much work to help you know professionals like me to know more and with everyone knowing more that only means we can be doing a a better job so thank you so much for sharing with us and how can people find out more about you and what you're up to if you just google my name David Stewart there and with chemsex after it it all comes up and there's loads of helpful stuff on my website and on my youtube channel that just talks about this stuff 
Um, the best way really is, is, is just be kinder to the person you're in bed with. Be kinder to the person you're on Grindr with. Remember that they, they're probably nervous and they're probably going to deliver a performance for you. They might consider needing chems because they're so nervous to have sex with you. You have the power to give them a really nice, kind sexual experience and to remove some of that anxiety and expectation. So that's where the best kind of support starts is just being really human and kind when we're engaging with people online Amazing. and in bed. That, you know, what a place to finish, I think. And, and you know, for me, I guess... The kindness is also about about being kind to ourselves. Yes, absolutely. Amazing. Well, David, thank you as always. An incredible, <laughs> incredible conversation. It was gorgeous talking to you again. Thank you, Kate. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Sexual Wellness Sessions. If you'd like to join us for more conversations, you can click subscribe on either Apple or Spotify podcasts. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review.